Since the dawn of civilization, spies of every nation and culture have worked to infiltrate their adversaries and glean the information that will give their side the advantage. The stakes are sky high, the strategies varied and imaginative, and the ultimate sign of success is that no one ever even knew you were there. In each episode, we will explore the moral and ethical gray zones of espionage, where treachery and betrayal go hand in hand with cunning and courage. This is the Spycraft 101 podcast. Welcome to your clandestine classroom. This is episode number 134 of the Spycraft 101 podcast. My guest this week is Dr. David Strachan Morris. David is a lecturer in intelligence and security at the University of Leicester, where he runs the MA in Intelligence and Security program, as well as being Director of Distance Learning for the School of History, Politics, and International Relations. Before embarking on an academic career, he served in the Intelligence Corps in the British Army and worked in intelligence management roles in the private security industry in Iraq. I invited David onto the podcast to discuss his work on the subject of North Vietnamese and Viet Cong intelligence activities during the Vietnam War. But before we continue, I've got something special to share with all of you, something I believe you're going to find as fascinating as I do. It's the whale hunting newsletter from investigative journalists Tom Wright and Bradley Hope. If you're a longtime listener to the podcast, you might remember Bradley, who was my guest for episode 87. I think I have a good grasp of what piques your interest, and I can tell you that whale hunting will take you on a deep dive into the worlds of money and power that you just can't find anywhere else. Uncovering the infamous 1MDB scandal, the world's biggest financial fraud, was like a red pill moment for Tom and Bradley. It revealed to them how the world really works, and how the strings of power are pulled by elusive figures. So they started writing whale hunting about the world's richest and most dangerous individuals, often unknown to the public. You can also follow the New Whale Hunting Podcast where Bradley and Tom share what's got them talking each week from headlines to underworld gossip, as well as interviews with reporters, spies, investigators, and the occasional criminal. It's not to be missed. I'm a subscriber myself, and trust me, whale hunting will change the way you see the world. But don't just take my word for it. Head over to whalehunting.projectbrazen.com to sign up. And to listen to the podcast, just search for whale hunting in your favorite podcast app. David, thank you for joining me today. Well, thank you very much for inviting me on. Of course, of course. As soon as I learned about your work, I realized that this topic of insurgent intelligence, as you called it, is something that I myself have never really learned much about. So I'm very excited to hear all about it from you today. Oh, thank you. Thank, thanks. So thank, thanks again for inviting me on. <laughs> Absolutely. So what was it that led you to study this specific subject in the first place? Well, I've always had an interest in the Vietnam War, and it was the subject of my PhD thesis and subsequent book, which looked at the U.S. Marine Corps counterinsurgency strategy in Vietnam from 1965 up to the Tet Offensive. So the kind of historical interest was always there. Um, but the article that I wrote, which is uh, probably the one that you read, um, came about after a conversation with a with a colleague, um, as, as all the best conversations are in, in the pub, um, uh, John Moran, who wanted to uh, put together a project looking at insurgents as intelligence actors in their own right, whereas up till now, we'd all, always sort of looked at them as 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 something to be acted upon rather than sort of how they actually do intelligence. And then around that time, 
as we were putting that project together, John Gentry started to do some work on, on insurgent intelligence as well. So it all kind of fit together there. Hmm. Okay, that is interesting. I can see that because it does seem kind of nebulous in a lot of the stuff that I've I've read and that of course that you read and, and kind of based your work on Sorry, to I've begin with. Like it's a force that acts against you, but nobody was really detailing how or why or when exactly. So I'm really glad that you were able to dive in and find some stuff to share with us. Uh, because you focused on North Vietnamese and Viet Cong, was it difficult for you to find like original source material from those organizations to work with? It was. It, it was quite tricky. I had plenty of material from the U.S. side of it and, and finding U.S. material what wasn't the problem. I had books. So I had some memoirs in English of Viet Cong members, including some of the intelligence personnel. So the likes of Pham Zwang and and some translated North Vietnamese documents in a volume edited by um, Ang Cheng Guan, who's a scholar in Singapore who specialises in in Southeast Asian history in the Vietnam War. So I could start sort of putting the framework uh, around it. But then as I dug deeper and deeper, I found a study on North Vietnamese intelligence by Colonel Hang Nong Lung, Lung, who's a former South Vietnamese army officer, and he had done a, a study at the time of North Vietnamese intelligence, which covered the period. And, and that was incredibly uh, useful. That that was an absolute goldmine. Mm. I'll bet it was. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. So let's go back to the beginning then. And, you know, from the American perspective, of course, you know, our war began, um, you know, really in earnest in the early 1960s. I guess you could kind of debate the date a little bit, depending on someone's point of view. But they were fighting there in that region long before we ever put any troops on the ground. So prior to the U.S. really entering the conflict there, how well organized was NVA intelligence? Well, yeah, as you say, they'd already been fighting for a while. So a lot of the infrastructure was already been in place. The war itself in the south, the second Indochina war started in 1959. And there were already some very highly placed agents within the South Vietnamese government reporting to the, the North Vietnamese and within the military of South Vietnam. And you can see this so in, in some key battles. So, for example, the Battle of At Bac in 1963 was considered a defeat for the South Vietnamese. But this was largely because intelligence had been passed to the Viet Cong, the North Vietnamese, before the battle by one of these highly placed agents. And they even had highly placed agent, what we call agents of influence within the South Vietnamese government um, and military who were affecting the war before U.S. involvement. And one of these was the officer in charge of the Strategic Hamlets program, um, Colonel Pham Ngoc Tau, um, who was a VC sympathizer, was able to ensure the program was executed badly. So these things were already happening bef- before the, the U.S. arrived. And I think it, it, this is probably a key point to kind of dig into why they were so successful at, at such high levels. Um, and it's because there, there was a significant section, really, of the South Vietnamese elite and middle classes who were dissatisfied with the way the country was being governed and wanted a more democratic system but being unable to express any dissent or alter the system because that would immediately lead them to imprisonment or worse, branded as communists and and traitors, etc. The only um, recourse they had was to throw their lot in with the communists. So for that reason, you know, you had these these people who were prepared to provide information and and sort of undermine the government for their own purposes, but not necessarily communist sympathisers. Hmm. Okay, that is interesting. 
I didn't realize that they would be advocating. Well, I'm not sure if this is something that you covered in your research, but how how did their goals, their ultimate goals align with the the communist goals for what was originally South Vietnam? I mean, did those people ultimately end up with a happy medium or were, you know, were they swept up as well? Because usually communist revolutions don't really treat the elites very well, I wouldn't think. No, they didn't. And in fact, I've got the memoir of, of the guy who, who was going to be the finance minister in the supposed new government. And essentially what had happened was this dissatisfied group sort of fell in with the communists, thought that there was going to be some kind of agreement between the North and South, and South would have some kind of quasi-independence or whatever, and they'd be able to run the government for themselves. But when when Saigon fell, this particular guy in, in his memoir, he talks about he, he sort of walked into what was going to be the finance ministry and realised the communists were all in charge and he was essentially a figurehead and they they gave him mm. no work to do. And basically they, they just took, they then took over the whole country and then merged the two, which is not what a lot of these people wanted or, or expected to happen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they aligned themselves with, uh, with someone without realising really what the ultimate goal was. Quite so, yeah. Now, I don't know if it was this one particular character, but, you know, you, you'd sort of read, he tells a story about a friend of his who was an army officer who was, pro- who was providing information to the communists, explaining he's not a communist, but he doesn't want what this government's, you know, what, what the South Vietnamese government was like. So, you know, there were a lot of these people who, you know, thought they were sort of doing the right thing and ended up not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can imagine that there were some eye-opening <laughs> moments there at the end, especially, but it's a little bit late to have second thoughts at that Absolutely, point. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. So like you mentioned, of course, here in America, we call it the, the Vietnam War. That's probably not the best descriptor for it. I know you refer to it in your writing as the second Indochina War, which is a lot more accurate because of the conflict that came right before that. So what did the North Vietnamese and the, the Viet Cong, or I guess it would have been the Viet Minh, what did they learn during that first Indochina war with France when they were kicking the French out of the region? The, they actually learned quite a lot. And, and here I, I owe a debt to um, Christopher Gosha, who's, who's examined that, that era and the transition period in, in, in some detail. And you can see there are documents where they write about lessons learned about intelligence and that they reform military intelligence, they reform the internal security department. And and there's a move towards professionalization. They kind of improve their 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 military intelligence at the tactical and operational level. They improve sort of their their internal security and general security departments. But there's still no sense that they learn about strategic intelligence and they didn't come out. They didn't come out of the initial sort of Paris Accords as well as they would have liked, and that's largely because they lack this sort of external intelligence service. But there's no sense that they try and redress that gap between the first and second Indochina wars. So, in terms of you know what they need for war fighting and internal security, you can see some improvements there. But in terms of the strategic intelligence, there's there's little or no improvement. Okay, I see. I think I remember, and perhaps I'm jumping ahead a little bit here, but I seem to recall that the the delegations that went to Paris towards the end of the conflict, they had little to no understanding of, of global events. Is that yeah. right? Like the larger picture outside of Vietnam, because they had not 
built that picture. They didn't have the infrastructure to kind of collect it on their own. Am I am I recalling that correctly? Absolutely, yeah. And and they had they didn't really have much of a, a diplomatic presence either. You know, they hadn't started to sort of open embassies everywhere and you know establish those kind of diplomatic relations that might have given them that that wider understanding. So yeah, their their focus was 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 very very narrow, and they didn't really, as you say, see see the bigger picture at all. You know, through, throughout throughout both throughout both wars. Okay, so what was their primary focus then? As narrow as it was, was it like gathering information on you know military strength in South Vietnam, or was it keeping infiltrators out of their own ranks from South Vietnamese intelligence, something like that? It, it was kind of internal and external at the same time. So they had an internal focus on monitoring and controlling the population, monitoring party members at at all levels to ensure compliance with doctrine and identify spies or counter-revolutionaries or traitors or whatever whatever they wanted to to call them. And of course, that, that was a massive effort. And then as far as kind of the external effort went, it was a case of focusing on on South Vietnamese and then US forces, but for targeting purposes and for operational purposes, either of units or, or individuals. And it was also this external focus was used for warning. So noting when units went out of control or where when aircraft took off, they would have people sort of literally standing at the end of airfields watching when aircraft took off and then noting the direction they went. Um, and then that warning would sort of be passed down the line. So you can kind of break it down in, into three main efforts at the same time. You've got internal security, warning intelligence, and then operational and, and targeting intelligence. I see. I see. Okay, that's amazing that the runway spotters that you mentioned, they could kind of replace a much more sophisticated radar system if you had a good enough network and if they were able to kind of estimate like what direction and what time and all that and what type of aircraft was flying. I think they got pretty good at figuring out where, you know, bombing raids and that sort of thing might take place with a little bit of advance notice, right? Yeah, they did. It, it was quite a, it was quite a sophisticated system. It just goes to show, you know, what, what you can achieve with, with a bit of thought and, and enough, you know, enough, enough people. So yeah, you know, a lot of the, a lot of these warning systems were, were quite sophisticated in, in their way, uh, but very low tech, you know? Absolutely. So what would you call like their initial like strengths and weaknesses leading into the second Indochina war? I mean, where were they really strong at? Was it with the external stuff in South Vietnam or was it, you know, just keeping uh, a line on their own party members, like you mentioned? The strong points really probably were were the internal security, keep, you know, keeping a, a, a line on their own people. From what I can tell, there was very little penetration of, of the VC or North Vietnam itself. Their counterintelligence was good and their being able to control the population was, was quite good. Their other strength was, was collection within South Vietnam. As well as human intelligence, which they were they were extremely good at, with some very highly placed agents, their OSINT collection was phenomenal. They had this system for for buy you know for buying newspapers at scale, and then they would they had this system of couriers that would get them as far north as quickly as possible into collation centres, and then people just churning through newspapers to to, to see what was there. They also, hmm. due to the U.S. government's insistence on on government transparency within the South Vietnamese government, this led to the publication of South Vietnamese government directories, 
of you know who who was who in, in various jobs, which were also very useful in, in targeting individuals. So oh, that, so bet. these kind of mass collection systems within within South Vietnam, you know, were obviously you know a huge huge strong point because they had the resources to do it. The weak points, however, then came with collation and assessment because there was so much information coming in that they just couldn't process it all, which, which was part of a problem. And then producing assessments and then producing strategic intelligence out of that was a particular weakness. Okay. Okay. I can see that. So once the war actually began, the second Indochina war actually began, I know that we obviously were facing the North Vietnamese army, a much more organized force, and also the the Viet Cong irregulars. And I kind of have always thought of them as like like very intermingled, but yeah. they were two distinct groups and they did, to a certain extent, at least have distinct goals in mind, right? So were they able to successfully like integrate intelligence collection between both the Viet Cong and the uh, North Vietnamese army? From, from what I can see, it, it looks like they... They did manage it after a fashion. So yeah, as you say, the the two the two were very different. The VC ostensibly being the you know the locally raised insurgents, and then the, the North Vietnamese army infiltrating. But the way the way they had South Vietnam structured, they structured it into military regions. So the military regions in the northern provinces, which would have been roughly equivalent to the American and Vietnamese I Corps were directly under control of the North Vietnamese Army. So the North Vietnamese Army would, were controlling the, the VC in those areas. So they would have reported direct to the North Vietnamese Army units. In the southern provinces, it was slightly different. There was something established called the, the Central Office for South Vietnam, which you often hear referred to as COSVN, which sort of ran the war in, in the southern provinces. And it was a almost a quasi-government but according to the organization charts, its military intelligence was reported direct into the military high command in Hanoi. So that so there was integration. After the Tet Offensive, when the, the Viet Cong sort of suffered suffered a major defeat, the North Vietnamese Army became the primary force throughout South Vietnam with their military intelligence networks, and the VC mm. took a more secondary role. But it was still heavily involved in security and pop- lo- local security and population control. Okay, I see. Did the the Viet Cong? Did they kind of? I don't know if I'd say fade away, if that's the best word, but were they kind of you know a reduced organization by the end of the conflict, just due to heavy losses and attrition and that sort of thing? I mean, did the NVA just come out far stronger than the VC, even though they did win the war? Yeah, so the the Tet Offensive really signaled the end of of the VC as kind of the lead you the the lead in the war in the south. A lot of the VC units were were effectively wiped out, and they mm. sort of faded into the background and became more of a local defence unit facilitating North Vietnamese army. And you start to see the North Vietnamese pursuing a much more conventional strategy when it comes to South Vietnam, which is less reliant on guerrilla warfare. So yeah, from about probably end of 68, 69, you start to see the VC taking taking more of a backseat. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that certainly makes sense. I know that Tet was a complete tactical defeat for them, although people didn't really see it that way in the long run, at least here in the US, even though it was. Yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah, very much so. So because these were you know, communist government organizations, I know that ideology and 
communist politics must have played like a huge role in every aspect of government and every aspect of the citizens' lives as well, right? Yeah, yeah. Politics, ideology had had a massive impact on these things because the approach was what they call people's war, which, as, as the name suggests, everybody's involved in the war. Everybody has a role to play. Everybody's fighting. Uh, and this included intelligence. So there was people's intelligence as well, in which everybody is a collector and reports to someone. And this isn't just information about the enemy. It's information about each other. North Vietnamese society and the areas under North Vietnamese control in the South was essentially a surveillance society. Families were grouped into groups of, of three, between three and five families, uh, and they were expected to keep an eye on each other. There were all kinds of clubs and societies set up around hobbies and jobs and everything that people were expected to join. And these were partly population control but again it was all about surveillance you know you watched everybody else who who was in the who was in the club and reported on them but it wasn't only a means of keeping tabs on each other it was also the means of disseminating doctrine and intelligence was important for both so intelligence was the means for collecting information but it was also the means for disseminating doctrine and proselytization of 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 communism Every day, you're under attack, whether you realize it or not. Your digital devices contain your entire life, your finances, your conversations with friends and family, your interests, and even your movements. And all of that is vulnerable to an ever-expanding class of criminals, scam artists, hackers, and even governments. You don't want to leave your data security entirely in the hands of your ISP, or anyone else for that matter. It's up to you to protect yourself using a multi-layered defense strategy. Silent offers you the protection you need to keep your data and devices secure from wireless threats. Their multi-shield technology blocks cellular signals, GPS, Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, EMP, RFID, NFC, and more. Silent's lineup includes everything from signal-blocking wallets all the way up to 40 cubic liter Faraday duffel bags. When you're geared up with Silent, you'll be truly disconnected, undetectable, untraceable, and unhackable. And you can now use the discount code SPYCRAFT101 to save 10% off your order from Silent. Find them at slnt.com. That's slnt.com. So that was their approach to, to, to intelligence. Everybody's a collector. But also it shaped what happened to intelligence as as it sort of moved up the chain. Politics and ideology caused huge problems because information was tightly controlled. It was kept in silos. Negative information or anything that contradicted the worldview of the leaders was withheld. So, you know, it was very difficult for them perhaps to get, you know, that, that strategic picture. Nobody wanted to contradict what the leader said was the case in case they were you know, accused of, of, of being counter-revolutionaries or traitors or trying to undermine the cause or whatever. So it was very, very difficult for, for that to happen. And paranoia was rampant as well uh, about traitors and spies, which which sort of exacerbated the, the other problems. So, you know, you sort of have this paradox in which you're collecting vast amounts of information, but you're not really able to do anything substantial with it beyond the the tactical and internal security. Right, right. That's exactly what I was thinking, because, you know, it's great to have 
you know, 100% of the population acting as eyes and ears of the party, but it's also got to be so counterproductive when they're afraid of, you know, being held responsible for every single thing that they do. And, you know, like a, a zero defect kind of perfect communist society that must make it really, really hard to provide accurate, but negative intelligence information up the chain. Absolutely. And then, and then of course, you have these problems, you know, if, you're, if your job is to hunt down spies and traitors and counter-revolutionaries and you're not finding any, then as far as the leadership's seeing, it's not because there aren't any, it's because you're not trying hard enough, you know? So... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you know, you you can easily see where, 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 where that that kind of thing, you know, that kind of thinking ends up. You know, you're you're kind of making things up. You're false accusing, you know. So you you then start to get you know a false false pictures coming in all over the place. So yeah, it becomes in these high, most high high highly ideological groups, you get these kind of problems. Yeah, I can see how that would be a real double edged sword for the both of these organizations. Yeah. So they obviously were not totally self-sufficient. The NVA were getting support from the USSR and from China to varying levels throughout the conflict. But how did their intelligence organizations receive any support? Did they get training from Soviets or or technical equipment, anything like that? They did. And and this this is a really complex and interesting question, because this is when you start to to pick apart sort of the communist world at the time and realise it wasn't a, a homogenous block by any means. It's difficult to answer in some ways, because there's a lot of information, as you can imagine, is still not in the public domain, particularly in, in Russia and China and North Vietnam at all. But from what what we what we can tease out is that there was support. So China provided some intelligence training and advice. The Soviets pr- provided assistance with the tactical signals intelligence capability, and both seemed to have provided some national level intelligence. But this only went so far. There was a lot of rivalry and suspicion between the between the, the three countries. So, so, remember at the time, you know, Soviet Russia and China were kind of rivals in the communist world. Didn't quite trust each other. Didn't necessarily collaborate. Neither one of them really trusted. Vietnam because it although it was communist it was still very still very very independent so they provide help but but only to to a certain extent uh, and relations were really fraught sometimes and there there was one occasion when Soviet intelligence officers were caught spying on North Vietnam itself and sending information back some of them were caught spying on communications between Vietnam and China to try and figure out what what was going on so sometimes you know that that there would be there were some expelled you know as as you see around the world oh, you wow. know diplomats expelled because they were spying sometimes they would have their movements within North Vietnam restricted so yeah it, it, it so so they did but it wasn't wholehearted total complete support by any means interesting so do you think that there was a concern either by China or by the Soviet Union at the time? Like, of course, we want to hurt our enemies via proxy. We want to hurt the U.S. and cause them harm here in Vietnam. But we also don't want the North Vietnamese government to grow too strong or too independent or too technically savvy based on our help because they might be a threat to us later on. Is that a possibility uh, there? Yes, of course. Yeah. I mean, that 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 was that was part part of the thinking also to an extent neither China nor Russia really wanted the war to escalate. So they didn't want to get sucked into it themselves. So I think they, they kind of, there was that sort of oh, sure. hands off thing there as well. But yeah, so the, there was a, a lot of suspicion around it. And don't forget, of course, you know, as soon as the, the Vietnam war finished, Vietnam and China went to war. 
So, you know, right. cooperation was by no means wholehearted and complete. Yeah, China had good reason to be concerned about the amount of help that they would be given since obviously the conflict broke out. And was it 78 and 79? Was that when that yeah, yeah, war it was, took it, place? It, was, I don't know it wasn't very long that. afterwards, was it? No. Okay, yeah. So were there any major setbacks for North Vietnamese and VC intelligence during the war? Like were the Americans or the South Vietnamese good at breaking up spy rings or anything like that? There, there was there was one spy ring that I found. It was broken up in 1969. So there, there was a, a large spy ring of 43 fairly highly placed agents was broken up. Oh, wow. So it wasn't, it wasn't all bad. And the, the Vietnamese did have their own uh, intelligence failures, largely down to these, the problems with, with their own strategic intelligence. So, for example, uh, the, the Tet Offensive, they completely overestimated the extent of popular support that the Tet Offensive would would generate in the South uh, and Mm. underestimated the extent to which the the South Vietnamese army would fight. And in fact, they don't get enough credit, I think, for for some areas where they fought very hard and did fight off the the North Vietnamese army and and the Viet Cong. And you you find documents, I've read documents after the the Tet Offensive, where, you know, the the North Vietnamese government say, okay, you know, we we really did get this wrong. We thought we'd have more support uh, once the Tet Offensive um, got underway. Um, and that this would be it, you know, this this would be the start of what they call the general offensive, general uprising. Same happens in 1972 when, you know, they, they fail to, to gain and use estimative intelligence about the South Vietnamese army that, again, they underestimate its fighting capability uh, and its will to fight. And they also under, underestimate the likely impact of US air power. So, again, despite achieving some kind of some element of surprise, their lack of 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 the ability to 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 use estimative intelligence at, at national level and their own sort of world view that you know what once we start these offensives that the people will rise up in in support of us that's just not the case yeah a lot of people have made that mistake a lot of organizations have made that mistake over the years mm. that surely everyone will see that we're winning and just spontaneously join us in it does yeah, not work out absolutely yeah yeah so were there i guess long after the war anyway were there any like famous North Vietnamese spies, highly placed spies that, you know, are, are like well-known people now after the fact? Yes. I mean, there's there's one in particular, Pham Swang An. He was a, placed as a reporter in South Vietnam and he had access to to everything. I mean, almost to, to the extent that he was in he was in military commands when orders were being given, watching what was coming in off of teleprinters and everything like this. So he was he was aware of when attacks were going to happen, when major offensives were going to be launched, when people were moving around, when important people were, were moving around. And he had a he had a, a huge impact uh, on the ability of, of the North Vietnamese to gain so so they were able to gain strategic warning which obviously did really did help during the war but again you know they they still he he talks about when he would try to send reporting of of attitudes you know opinions public opinions private opinions of the Americans and South Vietnamese and and he would say you know they they you know they're more resilient than you think, and all this kind of thing. And and he was told basically they weren't interested in any of that. They just want the warnings, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. So so you know you have people like that who have, who have this big impact when it comes to the kind of tactical operational 
uh, and strategic warning type intelligence, but then they're just not made use of when it comes to some of the deeper, you know, what we'd call the human factors, you know, what is General X thinking? What is, you know, what is the president of the United States thinking? What, you know, mm-hmm. What what you know what what did the president say to the you know say to his commander in, in that meeting and, and what what do you think of that you know none of that kind of assessment is getting through. Yeah, that's unfortunate. That well, unfortunate for them at least that they're you know very very good collector. His warnings were ignored, but that's that's another thing that happened many many times over history. I know. Oh yes, yeah. So we've talked a lot about like the low tech methods that they employed very effectively, but did they have any very solid? technical collection like signals intelligence or electronic intelligence, anything like that, that was they used effectively as well? They did, yeah. So there was radio interception equipment at, at tactical level. So they were able to carry out tactical and op- operational level SIGINT. And at one point, they managed to, to break the codes that the French are using, their diplomatic codes. And it's not clear whether these were stolen or whether they managed to suborn a clerk in the, in the French embassy. Hmm. So you can see they're making the, these kind of strategic SIGINT efforts. And they are past occasional SIGINT from the Chinese and, and the Russians. In fact, it, it's, it's believed that just before the 1975 offensive, the trigger for that was when the Russians passed a crucial SIGINT intercept that the Americans would not deploy air power in support if there was if there was a, another serious offensive by the North Vietnamese. Um, and obviously their experience oh, from, from 1972 was that that was the thing that had, that had blunted their offensive. So, you know, so, so yes, they, they do have these kind of technical collection capabilities and, and they do use them to, 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 to an effect. But it's, it can be difficult to get that kind of information because of all the types of intelligence. SIGINT tends to be the most secret and the most closely held. Right. Um, so it may be a while before we get the full picture there. Mm-hmm. It is always a waiting game for these stories. I find even 50 years after the fact, there's still a lot we don't know, which is oh. endlessly frustrating for people like us. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It doesn't make our life any easier, does it? <laughs> no, not at all. I've said that many times. There's so many things that like, you know, it's not going to hurt anybody anymore. Nobody's alive or still in a career position, you know, after 50 years, that's going to be affected by it. Just release it so we can all get some answers. But then if you look at the, you know, the Enigma and Ultra, I mean, a lot of that didn't come out till, you know, the 1980s. And even then the government was very reluctant to to let that go. So yeah, you can imagine how how reluctant people are to talk about this, this kind of thing. Yeah. Very unfortunate, for sure. One, yeah, one thing we've talked about many times with a lot of my other British authors and historian guests is the Official Secrets Act in mm. Britain, how strict it is and how we're like never getting anything for historical value out of the uh, classified archives, it doesn't seem. Yeah, it's very, very difficult, yeah. So since you mentioned the, the 1975 campaign, was it because of that that message that they got that the 75 campaign succeeded where the other one failed about because they knew that the Americans would not deploy the air power. Is that how they knew they could fully commit? I I think that was one of the factors that, that made it so successful. They were probably going to go ahead with it anyway, but that was the thing that they were like, yeah, you know, this, 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 this one, we can really go for it. But there were other factors in play. First of all, the North Vietnamese were much stronger in 1975 than they ever had been before. They'd built up a massive conventional force capability. Second, the, the 1973 Accords, although you know the, the Americans withdrew, the North Vietnamese didn't, so they still had substantial forces 
south of the border that, that, that they could use as, as a base. So they already had a, had a head start there. So it's really difficult to say how much of a difference American air support would have made. I mean, it, it would have taken perhaps time to get there anyway. So by the time they'd rolled across the border, it might have been too late. So I wouldn't say it was it was the factor, but I would say it was something that gave them confidence to do, to do it, if that makes sense. Yeah, it, it certainly does. I mean, that can be such an enormous factor, like you said, knowing that you're you know, not going to be losing these mass formations to unexpected airstrikes or anything. That's yeah. got to be a huge motivator to strike now while the time is right. Yeah, yeah. So do you think ultimately their intelligence activities during the war, like how decisive of a factor were those compared to logistics or you know, guerrilla tactics or, or, you know, foreign support, anything else that leads to winning or losing a war? <laughs> As an intelligence studies question, I know. Uh, my, my, <laughs> it'd be lovely if I, if I could say, oh yeah, it, it was all intelligence. But I, I think, I think it's fair to say that the, the early groundwork, so I think groundwork, so I think without that large scale infiltration of government and the military of South Vietnam in the early years, so, you know, between 59 and 65, and without the success early on of those highly placed human sources and ages and agents of influence, I think the early campaigns might have been very, very different. So, I, I, I so I think it's, it was important for laying the groundwork, and then, you know, when when they did get lucky with with those, you know, with those bits of intelligence, you know, the the Americans aren't aren't going to use air power, for example. Obviously, it it, it helped. It was one of many factors, but but I think certainly in the early years, it was perhaps more decisive than later on. Okay, okay, I can I can certainly see that. So overall, I know that you work a lot with and study and, and publish about insurgent intelligence, and North Vietnam obviously was a, a state actor. So do you think that their activities during the war, did they resemble more insurgent intelligence than a lot of other state actors did, or was it primarily state activity? I, I think I, I go back and forth on this because people ask me, you know, why, why I why I included that as, as an insurgent actor. And I think I think they were state, but I think when it came to how they prosecuted the war in the South, they behaved very much like revolutionary in, insurgents, starting, starting the war off, leading with, with the Viet Cong, leading with the guerrilla movement, the heavy reliance on low-tech collection, human and OSINT, the emphasis on internal security, the reliance on partners for support, the heavily sort of political and ideological nature of the way intelligence was, was collected and, and used, the heavy use of, of intelligence for targeting. We haven't really talked about this, but covert action. So things like terrorist active, terrorist attacks, bomb, mm-hmm. bombings in Saigon, assassinations. I think because, certainly in, in the early years, because the campaign was so very much an insurgency campaign, intelligence was insurgent type intelligence in the South. And they didn't really have the infrastructure in the North to, to, to behave like a state, they, they had military intelligence, I think, which was probably kind of state level. But as a state, they, they didn't really have it. So the intelligence you see as say, particularly sort of 59 to, you know, 66, 67, 68, you're still seeing an insurgency, really. So they behave like insurgents with regard to intelligence. Got it. Got it. I see. Yeah, it's, it's a fascinating topic to me. It really is. And I was so glad to get the chance to talk about it with you because it's been so rarely looked at by so few people, including myself. 
Of course. So I'm, I'm really glad that we had the t- chance to talk about it today. David, are you working on another book or some other project at the moment? I am, yes. Yeah. So I've got I've got two on the go at the moment. One one's an academic book, and one's what I call my my fun one. Oh. So on the academic side, I've been doing a lot of work on on combat intelligence as a specific part of of military intelligence, and I want to try and draw all that together in a book. I've got hopefully got an article coming out later on this year that will be the framework of, of the book. Because I think there's there's some benefit from from the academic side of studying combat intelligence and how militaries do intelligence in the field, but also I think combat intelligence has a lot to offer intelligence practitioners in, in other fields. So hopefully that that that'll be a that'll be a two way thing, and a lot of people will will, will find that useful. Hmm. Yeah, that does sound interesting. Um, and then and then the, the the fun one, which I'm I'm kind of fleshing out at the moment. I'm working on a novel which is set in the in the second world war and it's going to be about a, a, a u.s marine intelligence officer who's stationed with the marine battalion that was based here in northern ireland during the second world war we had a we had a battalion of marines here and they got up to, to some really interesting things around europe so I'm, I'm i'm kind of i'm kind of working on that as well in the in my in my spare time oh that sounds fantastic i didn't know anything about that but it sounds exciting to read well, I hope I hope a lot of people will agree with you when it's when it's written. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Do you have like a time frame for either of those books? I know it can take quite a long time to put them together, honestly. Well, the military intelligence one I'd like to try and get done by the end of this year, and then the novel maybe maybe done next year or finished next year, and then hope and then obviously it depends on whether or not I can find a, a publisher if that one ever comes out. Oh, sure. I understand. It sounds like a passion project, though, and that's good. Yeah, very much so. (laughs) Wonderful. All right. Well, David, thank you so much for your time. Is there anywhere that my listeners can connect with you, like on social media or a website or anything like that, if they want to follow your work after this? Yeah, so um, I'm on LinkedIn, and anything I do, I I post on there, so so you can find me on there. And I'm on Twitter as well as Dr. David SM. So that's Dr. David SM. You'll be you'll be able to, to to find me on there, and I'll be I'll be more than happy to to respond to anybody if they if they want to know any more, or if, indeed if they can tell me any more. I mean, obviously that you know they're always <laughs> you know I'm always always ha- always happy to learn and and be corrected in, indeed if there's anything I've said that people think I, I might have been off base on. Okay, fantastic, and I I know that you answer your Twitter followers because I'm one of them, and you answered me, which <laughs> I certainly appreciated. <laughs> You're very welcome. Yeah, and thank, thanks for reaching out, Justin. I've really enjoyed doing this. Of course. Of course, yeah, we'll link up your profiles in the in the show notes of this episode for anybody who wants to follow him after this. Thank you so much for your time, David. This is a really interesting subject, and I'm glad that I had the chance to talk to you about it. Thank you very much, Justin. Thank, thanks for asking me on. Of course. Take care. Bye. If you're interested in more of Spycraft 101, look for my page on Instagram at Spycraft 101. You can also find more great articles on my website, spycraft101.com. Thank you all for listening, and I hope you'll stick around because there's lots more to come. Disclaimer. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. The stories and statements expressed herein are experiences and opinions. They may not reflect the views of the host or the production studio. It's okay if you disagree with our content. No piece of media is right for everyone. If you love Spycraft 101, please check us out online, on Instagram, on YouTube, and especially on Patreon. Thank you for listening.